0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.
1: You're listening to Earth Matters from the Community Radio Network. I'm Ola Wallace and today on the show you'll be listening to something a little bit different. We've got student producers from the University of Melbourne to talk about
2: the water commons. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we are recording on, the Wurundjeri, Woi Wurong, and Wunurong Bun Boon Wurrung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nations, and pay respect to their elders past, present, and emerging. Before we proceed with today's episode, we want to issue a trigger warning to our listeners. Ola will be addressing incidences of sexual assault, and we understand that this is a sensitive and distressing topic. The times of this section will be included in the show notes, as well as links for assistance. I would like to note Ola, Fida, Zee and I are not Indigenous Australians and all the information provided about First Nations people and knowledges is drawn from Indigenous people and scholars. Our aim is for this podcast to provide a summary of literature which already exists.
3: Hello and welcome to our discussion of the tragedy of the water commons. My name's Vita and today I'm joined in the studio by my co-producers Z, Hello. Bree. Hi, this is Bree. And Ola. Hey, this is Ola. This is a water fountain that you know. This is a shower. And this is the sound of the Merry Creek from Clifton Hill. We engage with water every day and require it to live, but how often are we consciously thinking about it? We're all sociology students from the University of Melbourne studying social sustainability. And today we're gonna try and use this knowledge to look more critically at water in Australia, relating understandings of water in everyday life to the popular theoretical concept of the commons.
0: First, let's introduce the basic theories and frames to be the first step to getting to know our topic. I will explain them with a really hot headline recently, which is the Fukushima dilemma.
4: Tragedy of Commons. Through the definition from the Dictionary of Sociology, as a social material assemblage, commons is associated with human groups abused in certain ways and for various within the community. The Tragedy of Commons, first popularized by Garrett Harding in United States state describes a scenario where shared resources are overused and depleted due to individual self-interest.
3: Yeah, I mean, do you think that capitalism and the commons are compatible at all?
4: Capitalism is actually the opposite of communist. Capitalism. It's based on the competition nature of market. Wow, so in a system where everything is commodified for market competition, all common environmental resources have to be privatized and exploited for profit. Japanese oil nuclear waste. Japan's Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant, which experienced a catastrophic disaster in 2011. As part of the cleanup process, Japan has decided to release treated nuclear wastewater into the ocean since August 24, 2023. Yeah, that's
1: pretty alarming. So how does this relate to the duality debates between commons and capitalism that you were talking about before?
4: Actually, the two sides of the issue represent exactly the difference between commons and capitalism. For showing concerns to marine environment and thinking from the perspective of comments, while for supporting the release of treated nuclear water is from a capitalized stand. According to research studies from the UK and China in 2022 and 2021, terrible health issues will affect both humans and animals genetically. While, according to Japanese government and companies, all the water are processed to control the influences towards the environment and humans are legal and ethical. While this leaves environmental and sociological questions for future generations, questions will be discuss further next panel. Thanks, C. It's scary the effects that water
1: privatization can have on our environment. But from our comfy Aussie homes, it can be hard to conceptualize the daily water struggles of people living in the global south. And the people hit most hard are usually women. What if your reality was to walk for eight hours a day, every day, with the burden of kilos of water weight to carry for your family? So this is the grim reality for over a billion women around the globe in developing nations. In over two-thirds of households worldwide, it's actually young women who are traditionally the primary water collectors, according to the UN. So we can take a look at a case study by McFarlane and Desai. Of low caste, Dalit women in the slums of Mumbai to really show how water privatization has both a compounding racial and gendered effect. Since the '90s, Mumbai's water has been sold to big name Western drinks manufacturers like Coca-Cola, so India can compete economically with the West, which is an unfortunate result of colonization and the globalization of capitalism. But it's come at a pretty big cost. The resulting water shortages and contamination from these drinks manufacturing plants have meant that women in the slums are now paying 40 rupee on water a day, where monthly family earnings are only around 5,000 rupee. This has caused a lot of women to set up illegal water piping systems towards informal settlements on the outskirts of Mumbai. The status of these communities as quote-unquote illegal is a very deliberate ploy by Western drink companies as well as the Indian government to delegitimize poor communities and justify taking away a very basic need, the right to water, a life-sustaining resource. In situations like these, women are forced to choose between paying for vital medications for children and paying for drinking water. Women who have caring obligations can't work more or abandoned families to seek asylum, unlike their male counterparts. Decolonial theorist Akhil Mbembe posits that marginalized bodies living in such conditions are essentially living in a state of what he refers to as bare life, where they function on a daily basis with purely the aim of physical survival. So in 2010, when the Indian government cut these illegal pipes, this was an act of violence, subjecting these marginalized female bodies to the power of death to simply increase the profit margins of big commercial companies.
3: True, but I also might ask how decolonial theory applies to women in this situation, and how does it relate to feminist theory at all?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question, Vita. Well, firstly, while Mbembe notes that sexuality is linked to violence, black feminism has called out how he invisibilizes gendered forms of violence. Women's inability to access water also means they can't access sanitation, And as a result, express their femininity. So to give you an example, the delete women from those illegal communities we spoke about before, they have to travel in groups to landfill locations in order to just relieve themselves um, due to a lack of water for toilets and other hygiene facilities. These trips strip the women of their humanity and dignity because they're tied to their own bodily secretions in this way and they're not even able to access the luxury of privacy because they face the possibility of rape and murder from men that wait at these areas if they go alone to relieve themselves, so they have to go in large groups. In a lot of cases, women strategically starve and even dehydrate themselves so as not to risk this gendered violence at night if they have the urge to urinate. So it's pretty clear that the unequal distribution of water can be powerfully felt along these gendered lines. This is where ecofeminism comes in as a theoretical paradigm to help us understand this gendered phenomenon. But I'll walk you through it. So, building on Z's explanation of cannibal capitalism, ecofeminism basically proposes that the capitalist destruction of nature is sort of an extension of patriarchy.
0: Yeah, that is a really interesting point
1: that links
0: directly to mine, actually.
1: Yeah, so it might seem like it's a leap, but there has long been a masculine ideal of being able to tame and control Mother Nature, which is continually represented as feminine in Western symbolism. Theorist Frankie Wilmer even describes patriarchy as a meta narrative of domination, which is a useful way of looking at how patriarchy lays the foundation for the beliefs that lead to the capitalist uncommoning of water. But it's because of all of their closeness to everyday sustainable practices that it's imperative that these women from the global south are included as experts in environmental policy. And that's what these eco-feminists have noted.
3: I feel like we talk about theory a lot, but what are some real world examples of grassroots women's approaches to water sustainability that have actually worked?
1: Yeah, you're so right, Vita. It can get pretty easy to get bogged down in the theories. I can give you one example So there was a recent case study um, of the implementation of fog catchers in the northern mountains of Morocco. So these fog catchers are some incredible net types that trap drops of water from the fog that blows across these mountains. With climate change increasing temperatures in that area by 1.8 degrees yearly, they really needed a rapid solution. The water from these nets is fed through a piping system towards traditional Berber villages. The whole initiative was set up by a female Moroccan anthropologist, Dr. Jamila Barak. This was after the anthropologist noticed that traditional Berber women were walking upwards of a marathon daily to acquire water. This initiative was inspired by ancient indigenous fog catching practices around the globe, such as from Oman and South America, thereby re-centering and uplifting female indigenous knowledge with technology. The implementation of an education program on how to use the nets meant women could have agency and learn how they and the whole community could sustain themselves for years to come. And through the consulting with the women of the community in every step of the process, Barak ensured that the water could be distributed in the most sustainable way. Berber women now have an extra four to five hours a day and they can spend that with their children and even earning money, which was a privilege they didn't have before. They were also able to use water for vital hygiene practices that have improved health and restored a sense of womanhood. This project was therefore not only highly sustainable, but empowering to these rural women in the global south by putting their needs first. Importantly, ecofeminism must be applied to these successful cases in a reflexive way that acknowledges Spivak's theory of the subaltern as well, to create a bottom up approach to solving the problem, rather than viewing these women as having one collective knowledge and identity. It's only by giving these women a voice and a seat at the table that we'll see real positive change in the commoning of water. <laughs> If you've just tuned in, you're listening to me, Ola Wallace, talking about ecofeminism in relation to water. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Coming up next is student producer
2: Brioni Young, who will be discussing Indigenous epistemologies in relation to the commoning of water. Honestly, shared resources like water sounds like a utopian dream under a capitalist society. However, the commons water did exist and was sustained through First Nation peoples' epistemologies and ontologies. Looking at the Murray-Darling River Basin, it is one of the largest and most vital river systems in Australia, which spans multiple states. For generations, First Nations people maintained and continue to maintain a deep connection with the river. The river provided life and in turn it was nurtured and cherished. This relationship is beautifully summarised by a Yorta Yorta woman, Monica Morgan. We have always been and will always be the first people of this land. We belong to it and the water that flows through our country is as the blood that flows through our veins. Our bodies are formed from the country and it remains tied to its rhythms. This epistemological approach has allowed First Nations people to exist in symbiosis with the land for over 65,000 years till present day. Furthermore, the practice of songlines has fundamentally assisted with this continuous way of living and is an integral part of Indigenous land management and the existence of the water commons. Margot Neal explains, Songlines connected sites of knowledge embodied in the features of the land. It is along these routes that people travelled to learn from country. Songlines are foundational to our being, to what we know and how we know it and when we know it. They are our knowledge system, our library, our archive.
1: So could you explain what led to the tragedy of common water in Australia then?
2: While we can't cover all the reasons in one episode, the genocide of First Nations people at the hands of colonial settlers is nothing short of tragic and deeply disturbing. Expanding on this violence, colonialism is also culpable for the genocide of epistemologies or episticides, a strategic tool of colonialism that has led to the degradation of the land and consequently the uncommoning of water. To understand this process, it's crucial to recognize how knowledge outside of a Western framework has been treated. White supremacy is sustained and maintained. through Maintained through the enforcement of racial hierarchies, which is the primary support system for colonialism. This social stratification of people can be assessed through the concept of Orientalism, in which colonial powers positioned themselves as dynamic and progressive and flexible. In contrast, everyone beyond the confines of whiteness was seen as primitive and static. And as applied to First Nations people by Bain Atwood, the Australian construction of the self is based on the Aboriginal other. This underscores how the construction of identity for Indigenous people was shaped by these deeply entrenched racist logics, which galvanised the process of degrading or erasing the existence, belief systems, values, knowledge, and the land of Indigenous people. I Smith states... Knowledge was there to be discovered, extracted, stolen or raised, an active effort to destroy epistemologies to benefit colonisers. Thus, the uncommoning of water resources is a repercussion of these racist logics that is intertwined with a capitalist agenda. This process and outcome has been produced and reproduced, becoming organised and systematic under white supremacy and capitalism. In 1823, Edward Page remarked, When we first came here, I started a vegetable garden the soil dug like ashes. Nowadays, a common spade would be useless. In 1901, James Cotton wrote, "'The ground was soft, spongy, and absorbent. Gradual deterioration of the country caused by stock has transformed the land from its original soft, spongy, absorbent nature to a hard clay surface.'" These accounts demonstrate an admittance to the way in which colonialism is directly linked to the tragedy of the commons and the destruction of the land. This destruction has not only devastated Indigenous peoples' ways of living, but has also led to the corruption of colonizers' quality of life, despite claims of superiority. Let's not give colonizers too much space, though. Moving on, to continue Ola's sentiment in celebrating, uplifting, and shining the light on traditionally marginalized voices in white Australia, I'm going to share a case in which songlines have been practiced in the present century. In 2010, Australia was gripped by an unrelenting, decade-long drought, affecting everyone from rural farmers to urban dwellers. The Murray-Darling Basin waters was at an all-time low. Uncle Major Sumner, an elder and law keeper of the Ngarrindjeri people, the traditional custodians of the land and rivers, Emphasized the importance of reconnecting culture and earth. He stated, Just as the human body needs blood, the rivers and wetlands need water. Uncle Major Sumner undertook the revival of Ringbalan, an ancient ceremonial dance and song journey that spanned an extensive length of the river, from the headwaters of the River Darling in Queensland to the Gulwamu Nation. Dancers from various nations came together to embark on an epic 2,000 kilometer voyage. Nyangba elder Paul Gordon expressed, The unity of people mirrors the flow of water the resonance of their dance and songs had a profound impact of the land on the land dark clouds gathered and rain poured down marking the largest recorded rainfalls in years. This inspiring story reminds us of the wisdom of Indigenous communities and the deep connection they hold with the land. Rejuvenating nature goes hand in hand with revitalising culture and spirit. As described by Elder Major Sumner, the rain followed our path, sweeping across the land. This was a remarkable journey of reconnection and transformation driven by the profound insights and wisdoms of Indigenous people. Restoring water to the Murray-Darling Basin is not just an environmental necessity, but a spiritual and cultural revival.
3: So what do you think might be a way forward in re-establishing the commons?
2: I will only touch on this briefly and let you dive into this, Vita. However, to me, the answer is short. Decolonisation. I know this term is thrown around a lot, but its essence is a radical transformation in how we perceive the world and a significant upheaval of our current social structure, rooted in imperialism, patriarchy, white supremacy, and capitalism. Tuck and Yang argue that the term decolonization has been completely trivialized and reduced to a metaphor. They note the conflation of reconciliation with decolonization. Reconciliation focuses on saving the settlers' moral compass, posing questions like: What will decolonization look like? What happens after abolition? What are the consequences for settlers? However, decolon. Colonization doesn't require answers to these questions. It necessitates decentering the colonial settler. Capitalism and colonialism are rooted in philosophies of consumption and ownership often conveyed through the language of marking, defining, and controlling spaces. Terms like maps, flagpoles, and terra-analysis are wielded to delineate boundaries and assert colonial authority. Mariton Robinson further elucidates how these imagined boundaries and markings materialize in our physical surroundings, evident in every street sign, corner, and walkway. Regrettably, they extend their influence into vital resources such as water and oxygen, which are essential for sustaining life. It doesn't really make sense. Decolonising our thinking and actively practising decolonisation are central in re-establishing the water commons and all resources. Nurturing decolonial seeds can help people live in a reciprocal relationship with the land. To re-establish the existence of the common water, Australia and the world need to prioritise First Nations people and finally listen to the voices, knowledges, values and practices that have and continues to echo through the land. So,
3: coming off what Bree has talked about, we might ask whether the commons as a concept can ever be a part of making Indigenous reparations, or whether they ultimately persist the logic of the colonial present. And we may look at how establishing the commons fails to ensure sustainability. Notably, I bring up in the case of the Murray-Darling Basin and its display of Indigenous water rights, or lack thereof in Australia. Here we can see the commons continuing to exist within its original context of capitalist logics of individualism, and in doing this it dismisses Indigenous sovereignty, which many argue is central to creating sustainable futures. In a way, people with power in Australia already assume that water is common, based on the way that water, in the case of the Murray-Darling Basin at least, is currently managed in a private market. Basically, water is common to whoever can afford it. And the Murray-Darling Basin is a prime example of a persisting colonial relationship to the land. The long-standing, yet quite unproductive Murray-Darling Basin Plan was originally aimed at creating a fair distribution of water resources to people that live and work on the basin. It has become largely about protecting the agricultural industry since. The operation of water buyback schemes make the basin a lucrative investment for national and international companies. Over 10% of water entitlements on the Murray-Darling Basin are owned by foreign companies. For First Nations groups, though not to assume that their goal is to own water that was stolen from them, they're legally entitled to less than
0: 0.1% of the basin. I guess then, do you think increased funding can help close the gap? And is the issue with the commerce framework that it ignores that many environments are stolen?
3: Yeah, I mean, many people would argue that there's an issue when reconciliation is forced to operate through a colonial framework. Water which has been rapidly destroyed by colonial projects like agriculture, creating salinity in previously fresh water, wildlife loss and drought. Traditional Indigenous owners are expected to purchase back water, something which has never had their consent to be put on sale in the first place. And Indigenous people continue to bear the brunt of climate injustice in Australia and around the world. Many communities in Australia lacking access to drinkable water, let alone water as a site of cultural flow. These are basically just unacknowledged requirements for life. Many of the 50 plus indigenous communities on the basin speaking to the strong negative relationship between their people's health and that of the river. It also seems to me that an overwhelmingly settler government does not and will never take this crisis seriously, as funding has proved itself a defunct mechanism for making reparations in Australia in the past. In the murray Basin plan, for example, the funding that First Nations group receive is so grossly minimal. I'm talking like 0.3% of total funding being allocated specifically to Indigenous cultural flows over the 20-year course of the plan. Perhaps it continues to be convenient to deny existence of suffering of a group whose subjugation, your economic and political positioning, is contingent on today. Something that not only strives because of capitalist logics of countries' economy, but also because of the related logics of white supremacy, as Brie touched upon. These incessantly protect the flawed institutions of British invasion amidst opportunities to repair relations and relationships to the environment. Apologise for that depressing thought, but I think it's always important to consider those things, especially in our current Australia. So basically, yes, I think that increased funding would help, but that's also to permit an arguably flawed approach to environmental suffrage and reparations, which are both parts in creating a sustainable commons.
1: Mm, So how do we approach change then if we can't do it through funding?
3: A very valid and practical question, and who knows if I'm <laughs> prepared to give an answer, but um, I do think that the funding of resilience and power of money in the Murray-Darling Basin reflects the kinds of racialized privileges that exist currently in water management. Uh, more than that, it also reflects what many Indigenous scholars have argued for years, which is a need to operate outside of integrationalist social action. The idea being that hegemonic power, that being like a large political governing body, are overbearing and that appealing to it accepts its existence as valued. So no true returns of land or sovereignty can be made, it's argued, without completely overturning or unlearning colonial governance, as whilst reparations are made in small increments, movements of environmental destruction are permitted to a larger extent and climate change becomes a victimless crime. Aboriginal lawyer Irene Watson, whose work is super relevant to this point, says something that rings really true to the case of the Murray-Darling Basin. Quote: corporatist best practice is to get away with the maximum in terms of negative recognition of Aboriginals
0: people's laws, lands and well-being. End quote. Yeah, so do you think the commons can never be a useful and positive framework?
3: Yeah, so as we've alluded to throughout this entire discussion, establishing the commons or the actual approach of establishing anything remains in its default state, which is rooted in paternalistic projections of progression. As is the case of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, the idea of progression is ultimately concerned, it seems, with best economic outcome. As is generally the answer in most sociological discussions, it requires an ideological shift, amongst other changes. Indigenous scholars like Brad Mogridge, Irene Watson, Linda Twy Smith, and Eileen Morton Robinson, to name a few prominent voices, stress that If we're not returning indigenous law then we're permitting genocide by denying cultural exchange and self-fulfillment self-fulfillment being a point which i recognize will always be ironic coming from a settler speaker regardless it's pretty obvious that the current process of commoning which is exemplified by the murray darling basin plan emphasizes resource management over the essential establishment of water as a shared human right this approach risks perpetuating the colonial legacy of aqua or no man's water, in Australia. Therefore, i say, to create a sustainable future for Australia, we must not only view the Commons as another Western ideology capable of saving the Basin. There's irony and violence in this. Things like the UN's 1987 Brundtland Report and Garrett Hardin's 1968 Tragedy of the Commons are viewed as pivotal moments in climate justice history. How Indigenous peoples can see their evidently sustainable, millennia-old law and relationship to the land be violently disavowed, ignored, and now, in the past 50 years or less, be appropriated by settler governance because it's now starting to encroach on their life, is the true colonial present. Western logic prioritises a certain truth, and with it, an extractive relationship to the water which has evidently brought it to crisis. That's why I'm sceptical of the Commons framework. Our answer has always been an increased respect, reconciliation, and greater listening to First Nations' voice and law. It's just a shame that the path to get here has been so heavily fraught with a persistent colonial present in Australia.
0: While we may have exposed some of the sad realities of social inequality and its relationship to water, it's equally as important to value the people who are trying to change this and do not have the luxury of pessimism.
3: Moving forward, we may try to look more critically at how water management prioritises certain lives
1: and logics. And the question we leave you with is, what lives do we value? Water management reflects part of our answer to this. So how can we bring this to the forefront whilst also trying to balance out our current needs?
2: How can we empower all people worldwide in the access to equitable water resources and advance our water management practices for a sustainable future? You've been listening to The Tragedy of the Water Commons with Zee, Ola, Bree, and Vita. Today we spoke about water using global and Australian case studies to provide a sociological perspective on the topic. All references and further information are included in the show notes. This podcast was produced at the University of Melbourne Parkville Campus on the land of the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung and Bunarong Boon, Boon Wurrung peoples and was supported by 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy and the University of Melbourne's Sociology Department. <laughs> this
1: podcast was part of the show Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in broadcasting today's episode and the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy, Melbourne, and we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. That's all for now, but tune in next week for more environmental and social justice stories.
3: Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit wildlife emergency response service dedicated to helping wildlife in need across Victoria. Our volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned wildlife. If you see wildlife that may need our help on the road, in your backyard or in the bush, please contact us immediately on 8400 7300. That's 8400 7300. To donate or to become a volunteer, visit wildlifevictoria.org.au a 3CR supporter.
1: And even subtropical
0: rainforests that don't usually burn were actually on fire. We have the obligation to care for country. So much forest burnt that around 3 billion animals are either killed or displaced.
4: The more we push back against the colonial apparatus, the more positive change we can have in terms of addressing climate change.
0: PCR. Stay tuned. Stay radical. Tune in to Billabong Beats Tuesdays at 11am with me, Gavin Moore, giving a voice to both Western Kulin and Kulin First Nations peoples. Join me to talk about philosophy and dreamtime stories surrounding the waterhole, the sacred fire, the land, the plants and animals. Billabong Beats, 11am Tuesdays on
2: 3CR.